If you've got a Bible, open up to two minor prophets. One is Zephaniah, not Zechariah, Zephaniah, and the second is Joel. We'll look at Zephaniah first. It's going to be several minutes till we get there, so you don't have to rush. Those are all at the end of your Old Testament, so maybe put some bookmarks in with Zephaniah and Joel. I want you to think about time. And by that, I mean I want you to think about how you view the future. Maybe I can narrow that down to say, oh, maybe like the next two years of your life. So we can kind of analyze how we look at time by me asking you a question, which I'll do in a minute, and by looking at a couple illustrations on the screens, and we'll do that too. So first, here's the question. Don't answer it out loud, just kind of think about what your answer would be. What's going to happen in your life in the next two years? If someone were asking you that question, how would you answer it? What's going to happen in your life in the next two years? Here's how I think that might be answered in our culture. I think it might go something like this. Well, Ron, let me think for a minute. Oh, my son's graduating from high school next year, so May 2015, I've got a son that's graduating high school. He's not sure if he's going to go to college or get a job, but that's, that's in the next two years. Oh, and my wife's mother, my mother-in-law, she's not doing so well. She's older. She's single. So we're thinking that summer of 2015, if things keep going in the direction they're going, we're going to have to put her in some kind of assisted living situation or maybe she'll come home and live with us. We don't know. But we think there's a decision coming in summer 2015. And finally, I'm applying for a promotion at my work, so I hope that'll go through. If it does, I'll get a new title, and January, I get a nice big bump to my pay. Okay, that's about it. That's the next two years. We're going to call that viewing time as a line. And that line is going to have dots on it. And those dots are these events, like these three events I just gave you. Now, the time in between those events is kind of random, right? It's not like on the line you've got one dot, then exactly an inch later, a second dot, exactly an inch later, a third dot. In the example I gave, there's something coming up in January, the raise, hopefully, and then there's the graduation and the decision about the mother-in-law, and that's real close. In fact, you might think that's the only way of viewing time. You might say, Ron... Man, what other way is there? This is what's happening in the next two years of my life. Well, there are other ways of viewing time. Here's how I think an Israelite in the Old Testament would answer that same question. I think the Israelite would say something like this. What's happening in the next two years in my life? Well, in a few months, there's the feast of the Day of Atonement. And... Our father always gathers us around as a family and he leads us in meditations about who God is right leading up to and on that day of atonement. And then a couple months later, we've got the Feast of Sukkot, which is also called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. This celebrates our deliverance from Egypt. Then a couple months later, we hit the spring and we start the spring feasts with the Feast of Passover. And then we start it all over again for the second year. We'll do those same things. We're going to call this viewing time as a cycle. And so our picture for that is going to be a little bit different. It's not going to be a line at all. It's going to be like a slinky or a spiral that's set on its side. 
And because these are calendar events coming up by which people worship God, and they come up the same time in each calendar, uh, you see the same three or five or seven dots in the same place with each one of the cycles. So getting back to us, our culture, our time, we don't do this cyclical kind of thinking. Like, I don't think you would answer the question, what's happening in your life the next two years with, there's Thanksgiving in November, and then there's Christmas in December, then there's Easter, then we do it again. There's Thanksgiving, there's Christmas, there's Easter. We don't do that. I think the only time we'd say something special is if something unique is happening. So you might say, hey, this Thanksgiving, my mother-in-law is coming in. She's single. She lives in Brazil. Uh, we haven't seen her in three years, and so, man, it's going to be great having her with us. But that's not Thanksgiving in and of itself, right? That's something unique about that visit. So we don't do this thinking in cycles kind of a thing. There's a third and final way that the Old Testament prophets talk about and the New Testament authors pick up on, and we'll show that to you kind of a little bit later tonight. So tonight we're looking at a phrase in the Old Testament, and here's the phrase. It's these words, the day of the Lord. Prophets use that phrase quite a lot. In fact, here's what happens. They'll start a passage or a sermon with that wording, the day of the Lord. Then they'll abbreviate it a little bit, so they'll switch it out to something like that day, and then that can appear in phrases like in that day or on that day. So you're tracking with me here? The day of the Lord, that's the full phrase. It can get shortened up into that day, or in that day, or on that day. That phrase appears in all the major prophets, the three big ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and it appears in almost all of the minor prophets, not once, but several times. We're going to ask two questions about what that means, the day of the Lord. So here's question number one. Was the day of the Lord in the Old Testament a time of judgment, or was it a time of blessing? And the answer to that is going to be, it was both. Every time we read about the day of the Lord, it was primarily a day of judgment on sin. But it was also a time of blessing for a remnant of God's people, a group that he decided to have mercy on. So we're finally ready to get into the Bible. Here's our example. It's going to be in the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a book that is all about the day of the Lord. From the first chapter to the last, it's only three chapters long. So let me read to you a verse from Zephaniah chapter 1. This will be verse 18. To show you that primarily the day of the Lord is a day of judgment on sin and rebellion. So in verse 18 of chapter 1, we read this. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. So there you've got kind of another synonym. Instead of the day of the Lord, the day of the wrath of the Lord, the anger of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. In fact, in this book of Zephaniah, we read about in chapter one, the whole world coming under judgment. In fact, chapter one is bookended. That means it begins and it ends with the same idea. And that idea is the whole world, every inhabitant, every living thing comes under judgment and is cut off, is destroyed. 
That's the day of the Lord in Zephaniah chapter 1. However, in the same book, Zephaniah, in chapter 3, we read about this second part of what the day of the Lord means, that it's a time of blessing for a people of God, a people that he has mercy on. So chapter 1, the whole earth, every inhabitant, under judgment, cut off, killed. But then chapter 3 comes in to qualify that. Does that mean an end of all human beings in every sense? No. God saves a remnant. Let me read to you from chapter 3, verse 11. On that day, remember that's one of the ways of talking about the day of the Lord. It could be that day, in that day, on that day. You shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people, humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So, question number one, is it judgment, is it blessing? Yes, it's both. Question number two, is the day of the Lord one event in history, or is it more than one? My answer to that is going to be the same. It's both. It's one, and it's more than one. That is, the prophets see one big day of the Lord. The, like capital T, capital H, capital E. I've got to think about how to spell the. The, T-H-E, all uppercase. There's the day of the Lord, as in the final day of the Lord. The end of history as we know it. A day of judgment, still future to our time. We call that the second coming of Christ. That's primarily what the prophets are talking about. Now, little sidebar here, a little footnote. There were a couple day of the Lord passages that were against Babylon or Egypt, meaning a prophet would say the day of the Lord is coming against Babylon. And that might have taken place maybe six months after the prophet gave that sermon. So that day of the Lord is already done with and over. So done with a footnote, with that kind of noted, most of what the prophets talk about is a great and final day of the Lord where the whole earth is judged. This is what we read about in Zephaniah chapter 1. However, the prophets didn't clearly see that there were two comings of the Messiah, two comings of Jesus. So sometimes they talk about the day of the Lord, and we think, is that his second coming? Because some of this looks characteristic of his first coming that we've already read about and experienced. So I'm going to try to illustrate this idea of one day of the Lord, yeah, but there really are two of these day of the Lord times, these big ones, where huge judgment takes place and massive blessing takes place as well to a people that God has mercy on. So here's how we're going to illustrate that. Let's pretend you're looking at the Sandia Mountains, and it's a really clear day. So we're going to say it looks something like this. Now, this is taken from the north and the west, um, so north of where we are now. And if you can look at this, you see that there are actually two ranges or rows of mountains there, at least in the northern part of the Sandias. And so you've got to the right, or to our right as we look at this photo, one range and one crest. And then behind it, in the photo to our left, we've got a taller, bigger range. That's the one we all know. It's got the big rocky face. And that's where the real crest trail is, up on that bigger one. But again, point is, actually two rows in this part of the Sandias, not one. Now, what if the day isn't clear? 
What if there's some humidity in the air and it's a little bit hazy? The next photo is going to try to illustrate that with some nice balloons thrown in so Heather can see what we like doing here in October. <laughs> so here it looks like, man, there's just one row, there's one range, and there's one crest. That's all there is. But there really isn't. There are two, at least in some parts of the Sandias. So now let's try to maybe make that into a diagram with a prophet. So here's what's happening. A prophet, if it was a clear day, could see two mountain ranges or mountaintops. And these are going to be the first and second coming of Christ. But that really rarely happens. Sometimes God gives a prophet a clear view of the second mountaintop, what we're going to call the second coming, and not the first. Sometimes it's the reverse. Uh, we heard Drew read from Isaiah chapter 53. There's a, Isaiah getting a clear view of Christ's first coming and not his second. When, as the sacrificial lamb of God, he gave his life, paying for the sins of other people. And sometimes the air is kind of hazy and the prophet sees what looks like one mountain that he calls the day of the Lord. But there really are two fulfillments of that. And each fulfillment has a characteristic that parallels the other one. So I know that might be a little bit confusing, so I'm going to give you one example before we close up. Um, so here's the example of where you've got one day, of the day, but it's really two, and the same thing happens in the first and the second coming of Christ. One indication of the day of the Lord that the prophets talk about is that that day will be dark, not just a cloudy day. We're talking no sun that gives no light, and no light from stars either. Complete darkness when it should be day, when you should see the sun. The prophet Joel talks about this a total of four times. I'm going to read all four verses in the prophet Joel. Here's the first, Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Joel says, Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and of gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Same chapter, Joel chapter 2, a little bit later, verse 10. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are what? Darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. Same chapter, end of the chapter, Joel chapter 2, verse 31. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. One more verse in Joel. Joel chapter 3, end of his book. Verse 14. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Four other prophets say the same thing. That the sun and stars are going to be dark on the day of the Lord. Isaiah says it, Ezekiel says it, Zephaniah and Amos, and then here in Joel. So five prophets talk about this. So here's what's interesting. The prophets are actually looking at the day of the Lord, capital T, capital H, capital E. Again, end of history as we know it, second coming of Christ, the day of judgment of this earth, where what Zephaniah chapter 1 talks about will happen literally. However, there's a hint of this 
that happens at the first coming of Christ. So there are things that happen at the day of the Lord that also happen at his first coming because that's the kind of day of the Lord too. This is what Luke talks about in Luke chapter 23. Just listen, you don't really have to turn there. Luke chapter 23, verse 44. At the crucifixion of Jesus, here's what the gospel writer Luke says. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. So here's what's happening. Uh, There are two ways of reckoning time during the day in the days of Jesus, and this is one of those ways of reckoning time. In this day, you start counting when sun comes up, so dawn, beginning of the day. So let's say that's 6 a.m. So it's thought that Jesus, the Romans, started his crucifixion around 9 a.m. That'd be third hour if you're starting at 6 a.m. What would the sixth hour be? High noon. So from noon till about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, that'd be the ninth hour for about a span of three hours, in the, right in the middle of the day when the sun should be right at its peak, giving plenty of light. Uh, and Israel doesn't get much rain. It's very much like Albuquerque. Uh, so every day is a Sunday, basically. The sun is completely darkened. The cross does portray judgment. It actually does portray what Zephaniah talks about, the whole world, every human being, being judged, even being killed as the penalty for their rebellion, except that in the first coming, when Christ came, all of that judgment fell on Christ, not us. Right? That's a wondrous thing for New Testament authors, and it's a wondrous thing for us. That judgment did happen, on a worldwide scale, equal to the sin and rebellion of each man and woman, boy and girl, but it fell not on humanity, but on God himself. We've sung about that already tonight. So was Christ's first coming, which culminated in his death on the cross, the day of the Lord that the prophets talked about? Answer is kind of yes and no. It wasn't the day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord, but it was the day of the Lord, a second day of the Lord. Maybe, maybe a final question here. Why would God have Christ's first coming share some key elements with his second coming? I think there are a couple reasons here. One, remember what the day of the Lord is. It's judgment for sin and it's blessing for a remnant. That's gonna happen at Christ's second coming and it happened at his first coming. Second, having some key elements in both, like the sun being darkened, That helped the early disciples and it helps us to connect the dots to see that there are two comings and not one. So imagine, try to put yourself in the the head of a disciple or an apostle after the crucifixion and the resurrection. So they're seeing things like the sun being darkened and judgment falling, but it didn't fall on the whole world. The world, it doesn't end. So they're saying, Messiah came The day of the Lord came, and yet it kind of didn't come. There are two comings of Messiah for two very different purposes. But in his first coming, there are many hints, parallels to his second and final coming. So one by one, throughout the New Testament, and sometimes in the book of Acts, the disciples get this. The light bulb goes on. They have their aha moments like, 
now it makes sense. Let me show you just one of those. Peter, in his famous speech in Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes the prophet Joel. So I'll just read it for you. Acts chapter 2, verse 20. Peter says, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's Peter quoting the prophet Joel that we read about. But right after this, Peter talks about Christ's first coming. So let me read on. Here's verse 22, the very next verse. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter is having this light bulb turns on kind of a moment. Peter would have known about all those passages in the Old Testament about the day of the Lord. But Peter sees the first coming as the day of the Lord as well. This day of the Lord is so wondrous that again, this judgment came, but it all fell on Christ. It's so wondrous that every New Testament author after the book of Acts talks about the gospel and not lightly in passing as if it's a small thing. Think of the next book after Acts. Somebody tell me that is the book of Romans. Paul in the first five chapters of Romans talks about nothing but the gospel and this judgment that fell on Christ that should have fallen on us. In fact, after chapter five, the rest of the whole book is implications of that gospel. And then the rest of the New Testament follows suit. So going back to Acts chapter 2, Peter knows that Christ's first coming was the day of the Lord, that the sun was darkened. But you know what? We also read in the book of Revelation, which is the very last book of our Bible, that the sun will be darkened again because that's what the prophets primarily looked to was the second coming. And before Christ comes and Zephaniah chapter 1 is literally carried out, the sun will be darkened. There are about 10 of these parallel characteristics, the sun being darkened in the first and second coming. There are about 10 of these. So I'm not going to go through the other nine now. That'll take the next four hours. But let me give you one example of another instance. The very last book, the very last couple verses of our Old Testament is the book Malachi. In the last verse or two, Malachi talks about the great and terrible day of the Lord, by which he means what we'd call the second coming. And he says, before that happens, Elijah will come as a kind of messenger, a forerunner. In fact, the book of Revelation talks about a guy that seems to have all the characteristics of Elijah that comes right before Christ's second coming. Most commentators think in the book of Revelation that isn't going to be Elijah literally come down from heaven and walk the earth again. It'll be someone in the spirit of Elijah, someone that you'll look at and say, wow, that guy's just like Elijah. Malachi is talking about the second coming. However, was there an Elijah, someone in the spirit of Elijah, that came as a forerunner, as a herald, a messenger that talked about Messiah when Jesus came the first time. 
Yes, there was. And you can tell me his name was John the Baptist. There are 10 of these things that make us think there are, there's a day of the Lord, his first coming, but there's also the day of the Lord in its kind of technical sense, its full sense, his second coming. Well, why come two times if you're doing the same thing? It's not the same thing. The first time, judgment fell, death fell on Christ. So imagine the relief the apostles would feel. By faith, by believing in this, we can be saved from the judgment that falls on all humanity at Christ's second coming. All right, close with this. Here's our third and final way of viewing time. Ryan's actually mentioned it dozens of times if you've been going to Desert Springs for years. Um, it's called now and not yet. This is the viewpoint that the prophets have and especially that New Testament authors have. So if we envision that purple mark, that vertical bar as being Christ's first coming, many things are inaugurated at his first coming. He actually says the kingdom is with you now and yet it's also coming in the future. So the second mark, the one that's red, is his second coming. This now and not yet, you can apply to five, half dozen, ten different things. Let me give you three examples. The day of the Lord we've talked about is our first example. That happened already, and yet it hasn't happened. It is going to happen in the future. The kingdom of God, I mentioned that. There's a second example, has come and is now, but the kingdom of God is also yet to come. The new heavens and the new earth, that's future. Christ starts that at his second coming. How about a third and final example? Salvation and sanctification by God's Spirit have come. God's Spirit indwells us as believers. We're in a radically different world than the world of the Old Testament. But have we been delivered in a final and ultimate sense from sin? Wow, no, no way. We struggle with that, every one of us in this room, every day. We know that we have not been delivered completely from the presence and the power of sin in our lives. So there's a now, sanctification has come, and there's certainly a yet-to-come element to sanctification. So this is our hope, people of God. Christ himself, his first coming, where he offers salvation, and his second coming, where, yes, the world will be judged, but the people of God are saved as a remnant because of God's mercy. One hope, Christ a hope now and a hope in even more to come than we experience now.